Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. characterise the university as trying to foster. Well, I mean, one of the things I think we should be trying to foster is an attentiveness to the world, you know, a capacity to listen. And listening and hearing are, di- are not the same thing. You know, the listening artfully in order to hear and understand is, is another one of those skills that we perhaps don't speak enough about, you know. Um, and uh, listening to someone else is not just you know, a precursor to speaking yourself or, you know, or speaking over others. So, I mean, Nietzsche, in a way, in his essay, which was written in the early part of the the 20th century, is pointing to the kind of authority of, of those who are knowledgeable. So the student should relate to the university only through the ear and the ear alone. The student should listen obediently. So, and there's a part of that that I think, well, actually, I'm not sure how productive that is, that sort of obedient, silent student, yet at the same time, that uh, experience of distraction and, and, and the quality of attention and attentiveness is important to foster as a skill for students. What is the value of a university education? Does the university serve the public good and embrace core intellectual values of openness, curiosity and creativity? Or has it been reduced to a mere financial transaction? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack the importance and value of education with writer, academic and teacher, Dr. Les Back, whose latest publication, Academic Diary, has just been published by Goldsmiths Press. In Academic Diary, or Why Higher Education Still Matters, Dr. Les Back writes... To the outsider, the cloistered world of the university can seem full of eccentricity and intrigue. For the uninitiated newcomer, campus life seems governed by absurd invisible protocols and mysterious unwritten rules. This story aims to demystify them. Les goes on to argue, as universities become more businesslike and we end up viewing our students as, at best, paying customers, or, at worst, distractions that keep us from the real work of writing and research, it's easy to forget that universities are also places where teachers can play a small role in helping students, not just through the curriculum, but in life itself. So with that point in mind, does a university prepare you for life? My name is Les Back. I'm Professor of Sociology at Goldsmiths in the University of London. But I came to, to sociology somewhat by a circuitous route and, and actually to, to studying at university by a circuitous route too. So I was the first in my family to go to university. And I went to the college that was closest to where I lived in South London. And I started out initially studying geography, of all things, but then I had this wonderful teacher called Nikki Nelson who came to the first-year induction lesson and said, you know, well, she was introducing what social anthropology was. She said, you know, if rocks make your heart beat faster, then anthropology isn't for you. So I immediately thought, okay, 
where do I sign up? <laughs> How can I join? And it started out, my road into sociology started out with social anthropology, which is the study of human society on a global scale. And from there, I finished my degree and then I did a PhD in social anthropology, but not anthropology involving going to a distant shore. I was more interested in what was going on at the bus stop. And I wrote my PhD thesis about what it meant to grow up in London in the 1980s in the area where uh, Goldsmiths College is, which is in this former industrial part of, of Dockland, London. Really well done on the book, Les. Um, it's a terrific read and um, for anyone interested in university life or student life, you've got some smashing advice in it. I might throw you a big wide open question to start mm. off with and sure we can take it from there. How important do you think it is to learn to think for yourself? And what I mean by that is how important is critical thinking to life? I think critical thinking and enabling young people to think for themselves is the most important aspect of what education should offer young people. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't put it any stronger than that, really. It is the most important thing. I think the problem in our time, and as educators, and it's partly why I wanted to write this book, is that the stru- way in which education is structured seems to be undermining the capacity of young people to learn how to think for themselves, how to attend to the world, World, how to understand, you know, an experience of coming, coming of age now is coming of age at a moment when human societies are producing more information than at any other time in our history as a, as a species. Uh, yet at the same time, the ways in which we teach young people often seem very formulaic, very goal orientated, very narrowly concerned with attaining the right grades, the right, you know, the particular forms of assessment uh, and so on. So in, in a way, I think that facilitation of an inquiring, open, critical mind is what education should really be about. What about the emotional, moral and, I suppose, psychological demands of the workplace? Do you think a third level qualification equips any student, whatever age they come into education, with the challenges that face them on any given day in the workplace? Well, you know, I, I think that's a really complicated question, to be honest, because in, the, in one sense, there's a move and a, and a feeling in the culture that we should be providing education that's really useful, that's very vocational, that's orientated to the kind of tasks that you, you, you need to be able to manage in the world of work. Yet at the same time, I kind of feel that that move towards vocationalism misses and can sometimes distract us from thinking about the kinds of qualities of mind or capacity to think for yourself or to have a supple sense of how to attend to the world that actually is very, very important in the workplace. So, you know, I, I'm sort of reluctant to argue for a sort of narrow vocation. And I suppose in a way what I think is precious about university education particularly is the challenge that we, we basically throw down to students to decide, well, what is it that you think is important? What is it you think is interesting? What is it do you think is significant? And then to think for themselves and weigh the significance and the relevance of those issues. And in a way, I think that's a kind of form of problem solving that is, you know, a resource not just in terms of your first job, but a resource through life. So what does the word university mean to you? How do you understand it all? In a simple way, in a sort of one-word answer, it's a place for thinking. A place to think, that's what I think a university should be about, and a place to think critically about 
the questions of our time um, and also the, about knowledge itself. You know, I mean, I think one, one of the things that I, I never tire of is that energy that students come to the classroom with to want to know, to want to understand, to want to think about things. And so that's what it means to me. And in a way, the diary, I was hoping, it can be a place of anxiety too. So many students experience that opportunity as a form of anxiety. They don't really understand what's going on, what's expected, what am I supposed to do? And so in a way, I wanted to write this book as, as a kind of a guide, but also an argument for that experience. So memoir meets self-help, if you will, in the education well, field. It was funny, you know, when I first started out with this project, it started out as a series of columns. I, I used to write a column for our union magazine for university teachers here in the UK. And I basically stumbled into this way of, uh, it was a discipline to be able to produce an article each month, for me anyway, to deadlines. Uh, not one that academics are usually very good at actually meeting deadlines and writing to a deadline. But anyway, I, I stumbled on this um, formula for doing it, which was to take something that had actually happened as a sort of moral tale and then link it to something larger, to something bigger. And in a way, that's how the form of the book and the diary form itself came to be. But I took the book to many publishers and, and they all, and people in publishing are often book lovers. They said things like, oh, what a great idea, but we can't sell it within the format that we have to sell academic books. So I stumbled at that point uh, and couldn't get a publisher initially. And so I was sort of frustrated for a long time. And, and in, in the end, the publishers would say things like, desperately, say, well, couldn't you kind of write an academic self-help book or, a, you know, how to be a professor before you're 40 type guide, which I wasn't really interested in at all, actually. But I was interested in these, you know, moments when things are revealed or that, and, and wisdom that wisdom comes to mind. And you think, okay, the lesson here is about, you know, the importance of teaching or the value of writing or why reading is such a precious thing. Yeah, you have some terrific chapters on, you know, the role of the library and you've got lovely stuff on deep listening. One of the aspects of the book that I was particularly interested in was on failure. Yeah. And it got me thinking, we all go through highs and lows throughout the education system, whether it's second level or third level or whatever field we go into. It could be a night class. How important do you think failure is for intellectual or creative or moral growth? Because it's one thing once you enter any class classroom no matter what age you are you're not always going to succeed well you can't learn anything unless you fail and then try to do better next time you see i think that that's again you know when we started talking one of the traps in the way in which education it works now is that failure is almost like a life sentence for some young people you know every year it strikes me so so intensely at the time of year when students get their end of high school, A-level uh, results, as we, as we call them in the UK. To be a failure at that point is almost like, you know, a, a, a sentence of utter failure, which, are, you know, and of course, failures are, 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 are fleeting and passing. And, and those grades that students get at 18 aren't an indication of their intelligence or their capacity or even their potential. They're momentary judgments. And of course, who, who in life can get their judgments right every time you know so i think failure is really important and the thing about failure that i think is precious is the moment when you think to yourself okay what can i learn from this what can be learned from this failure or from this thing that i've got wrong and how can i think or do better next time
Do you think that university lecturers are the whole culture of a university? Do you think that they support that? No, I don't think they do. I think they should, but I don't think they do. And I think, you know, sometimes... I mean, the book is, is in many respects, I hope, a fond and an argument for the best values of the university or the best values of intellectual life. But, you know, sometimes there can be cruelty in those judgments. There can be put-downs. There can be all kinds of professional forms of gaming that operate and use failing others as a kind of exercise in, in elevating themselves. And so, you know, this isn't Mr. Chips, although I know sometimes there are Mr. Chips moments in this book uh, because it is a fond portrayal of those things that I do hold dear and think are precious. But at the same time, I hope there are, there are other kinds of emotional keys in the book too. And so, you know, I think the thing about criticism is also very key here, you know, in the context of our talk about failure. So, you know, sometimes criticism is given in bad faith where, to go back to what I was saying before, a criticism that you can learn from is a useful criticism. But sometimes criticisms are made in a way that are utter and total. So the only thing that's left for the person who's being criticised is to sharp shop, go home, give up, forget it all, you know. So uh, I think that Failure and criticism and learning should be linked, in my mind at least. And it's interesting when you talk about that, whether you could be in a lecture or a class and there could be maybe 20 and how criticism or feedback is given by a lecturer. That can be a very tricky one to navigate, both for the lecturer and the student. It's another thing when it's behind closed doors and it's one to one, which brings in a lot of vulnerabilities and exposure. But it's such a complex environment, isn't it? It is a complex environment, you know, and in a way, I wanted to, to write this book but to explore some of those complexities and the moments, you know, when there are things that are being done successfully as well as those moments when things go badly wrong or that, and, and, you know, there's, there are lessons in both. And so it is a very complex environment in, in that way. And, and you know, learning is, often is about making yourself vulnerable, you know. Sometimes ignorance is the most comfortable thing. You just reside within it. You never question. But often young people, particularly the ones I've worked with over, you know, more than two decades now, they're often putting themselves at risk in, in that moment when they're trying to be more than they are already. They're looking for something else. They're looking for something new. They're looking for a change, not only of of perspective, but they're looking for a change in their future. Now, one of the aspects of the book that's particularly interesting is your argument on the commercialisation of the university, Mm. or as we know it today. And you write, the marketisation of the university has turned campuses into places of commerce. It corrodes the value of thinking and learning. Money can't buy a thought or a connection between ideas and things or a link between a private trouble and a public issue. The commercialisation of higher education cheapens us all. They're very strong words, Les. And I'm not sure maybe would some registrars or university presidents agree with you on that one. But it is a factor that we have to consider that not everybody is loaded and not every government supports, gives proper supports to third level education. So you can be uh, pretty out of pocket by walking through these hallowed grounds, can't you? No, yes, you can. You know, I think that's the sort of tension that I, and young people are. You know, the co- it amazes me, actually. And it's inspiring at one level and shameful at another, inspiring in the sense of the willingness of young people to incur the kinds of costs and the increase in, in the financial costs, uh, the increase in university fees, at least in, in the UK, have resulted in. 
it's not fashionable amongst many of my colleagues to say this, but you know, I feel an incredibly strong responsibility to give them value for, for what they are paying, actually. Yet at the same time, the thing that's complicated is that if you operate within that kind of logic, you know, okay, what am I paying? What am I getting? So much of what is of value and what is important about that volatile but precious space of thinking can't be properly embraced. You know, the value of learning can't be reduced to a financial transaction. It just can't. And, and in a way, to try to do that, that's why I think, and, and they are strong words, that's why I think it does debase what is valuable about education and learning to try and reduce it to that kind of transaction. And, and you know, in a way, I guess, I, in, the, in the context of, of my working life here in London, is a, a, in recent times, have lived through, if you like, a period where the university has been utterly transformed, has been commercialised in a kind of hyper-privatised period, if you like, fog almost. And so, you know, universities have become corporate entities at a very fast pace. And I think, you know, there are, there are costs to that that are more than about, you know, the finances of, of institutions. They're about what that does to the environment of thinking. So, you know, some commonly ha it commonly happens. I'm sure many people have stories like this where you hear students say things like, well, I'm going to make sure I get to that lecture because I'm paying for this. Part of me thinks, yeah, you should be at that lecture and, and acutely aware of how much they're paying, how much it costs. Yeah, at the same time, to think that, you know, reading f five uh, articles from the virtual learning environment or photocopies as they used to be in the old days um, would automatically, you know, correspond to a certain grade misses the point of that difficult task of learning to think for yourself as a student. Do you think it's too strong to say, Les, that the university system has failed poor students? Like you uh, come over to Ireland quite a bit and you're very familiar with our university system. Mm. And if you go all across Europe, I'm just wondering whether you start out at 18 in a university or you go back as a mature student, there's so many hidden costs. Do you think the university system has failed the poorer students then? Do you think that's too strong to say? No, I, I think historically it has, absolutely. I mean, I, somebody who's had an experience like mine where, you know, you come from a family where there, there's no history of higher education. The, the opportunity that, that was given, gifted, du during those periods, and, you know, in a period where there was financial support, support and maintenance grants given to students to go on to higher education, that was a really precious opportunity. And I think, you know, there was a period and there has been a period where there was an expansion in those opportunities and, and things like opening and widening the opportunities that were offered to people on a societal level had more than a measure of success. Uh, I think the thing that I, I worry about myself now is that as we move into another kind of moment where the increase in student fees has happened in the way that it has. Um, the burden of indebtedness is passed on a generation. I mean, I think it's the thing that I think is shameful that many of us who are teaching in the university now benefited from those new opportunities that were given to people like us. Yet at the same time, we are presiding over and living through a period where those opportunities might be being closed down. 
and the, the tension that it feels like to me. You know, people that I were, was inspired by, but the person who was the warden of Goldsmiths College when I was a student was a man called Richard Hoggart who wrote a fantastic book called The Uses of Literacy, which was precisely about the importance and the value of education as a kind of collective highway and the threats to it for poor students. And, and I, I, the thing that I think is the, the great tension of our time is, well, to what extent is that commercialisation and the move to student indebtedness going to narrow the constituency who've, who can afford to go to university? What about all the class stuff? Because if I walk through, and actually funny as we're talking today, I had a cup of coffee down in Trinity earlier. And, you know, apart from all the tourists that come through Trinity, it's a a pretty middle class environment. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, do you think in terms of ethos and culture that the modern university has cut across all the class boundaries and absurd hokey pokey class clubs and that we have some level of integration, whether it's intellectual or otherwise? Well, it absolutely, you know, it, it, it both reinforces those class distinctions in an incredible way. Higher education, I'm thinking here, it institutionalizes those class distinctions. Yet at the same time, there are moments when the university itself becomes permeable in terms of the class backgrounds of those people who end up studying there, you know, and that's why it's such a, an intense and complicated and important place to to struggle over a different version of what education can be you know on the one hand it's reinforcing those class distinctions and on the other hand it's opening out the possibility through education for students from working class and poor backgrounds to redefine themselves so i think that that's what i've always thought was so important about the classroom it is a site for that struggle and, you know, I, I, the things that are documented in the book are those initiatives and things that, that I've been involved in where that struggle is unfolding. You know, there's several of the interests, including one, a brilliant project at Goldsmiths called Open Book, which was started out as a prison education project, really, or, you know, students who had, had histories of, of offending and, and sometimes started out their studies inside prison, came out of prison and went on to university degree courses and ended up with degrees. And that project is, it was an extraordinary one and, and one that I've been really happy to give time to because I've learned so much from it. But it's, what I learned is the nature of that struggle. You know, In order to have a different life or to have different opportunities, say, as a working class student or a student coming out of open book, is the price of that a kind of cultural and social suicide? What about the quality in um, overall teaching and the capacity of some of the teachers or lecturers in universities? I went back to college as a mature student and it was certainly different from my college experiences of 20 years ago. Mm. You know, it was a completely different place. But I did notice, and maybe it's just older, more critical eyes, that I didn't think that the level of teaching, it was certainly very varied in Mm. the department that I was in. So I'm just wondering, do you think that students who are paying these exorbitant fees and big financial, emotional investment in their lives, do you think they're getting bang for the book? Like you write that academics regard teaching as something secondary to the great adventure of discovering new knowledge that no one is interested in. And you say that, you know, all these half these journals that are written by academics, they're well, they're not really relevant to your students they're a very niche area so I'm just wondering like a lot of academics and teachers wouldn't agree with you on that point oh no they wouldn't I mean and and that's again you know in in a way the argument I wanted to make was precisely the value of teaching not not only in terms of giving students value for what they're paying but also in a sense that 
teaching being a place where that precious thing, you know, thinking for yourself, thinking together, that's when it's alive. It's alive at its best in the lecture theatre when a teacher is on the edge of what they understand and thinking, you know, on the edge of what is understood in their particular field on whatever topic that's happening in that particular lecture. And the students are also there in that moment with that lecturer trying to understand these questions and problems and also often pushing the lecturer to think beyond what they already know. I mean, that's what I think is is so precious about teaching and why I feel so strongly that if you're not interested in teaching, then you shouldn't be in a university as a member of staff. You know, that's just flat how I think about it. That's why teaching is, is so important, because I think students are the first public for our ideas and for new ideas. And, and oftentimes they can be, can be in that moment. I mean, it's hard to describe it, but there are those precious times during the course of teaching a particular program where there is a kind of heavy silence that hangs in the room. And that heavy silence contains the attention of the students and the message that the lecturer is conveying and that somehow in that moment those ideas are kind of pregnant with all kinds of possibilities and insights. You can almost feel it. It's, it's like a, you know, a collective form of thinking together. And that's teaching at its very best, I would say.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cal. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, I'm talking with writer, academic and teacher Dr Les Back, Professor of Sociology at Goldsmiths University of London, whose latest book, Academic Diary, takes readers on a lively and reflective journey through a single academic year, where Les writes, Racism in higher education can take a very crude and brutal form. It furnishes assumptions that black staff will take care of the race dimensions of the curriculum or that black or Asian colleagues will automatically be good with the ethnics. Most white academics see it as unthinkable and unreasonable that any accusations of racism should be levelled at their door. For them, the face of racism is that of the moral degenerate, the hateful bigot or the mad eccentric. Couched in those terms, it becomes unthinkable that such an ugly word could even be directed at genteel, educated and liberal dons. Even raising the issue of institutional racism tentatively in higher education produces responses such as how could you or how dare you make such accusations rather than simply hide the refusal to acknowledge the problem that is the rebuff. Don't look at me. The open question that whites need to embrace is why not me? I asked Les about the challenges facing lecturers today in the theatre of life and whether teaching is an art form. I think, it, well, it should be, and it can be, actually. Uh, and I, I, I know that there's a, a good deal of concern on the part of university teachers on, you know, the degree to which students read in the way that they did in the past and uh, their attentiveness to things and, and so on. But I, I actually think that one of the challenges of being a, a teacher at all levels, but particularly at university le- level, is, is to start to really develop an attentive understanding of where the students are. You know, what, what kind of mediums through which do they read? Uh, where does information circulate in their lives? And I think that there have been huge and profound changes around all of those forms of circulation of information in the last 10 years particularly. So in a way, part of the art is, is being attentive to the kinds of experience of information, learning and ideas that students are are drawn within, you know, that's where they live. And arguably there's quite a significant generation gap now with regard to technology and education yeah. between, I imagine, some teachers 50 up as compared to their students who are doing everything on the internet and online really, isn't it? Yeah, no, there is. And I, I, I must be, I love those intergenerational, um, with the intergenerational rub, if you want to put it like that, you know, around questions of technology because students are often pushing us, pushing us too. You know, you could either respond to it by saying, well, well, it's all fangled nonsense and, you know, books were always the best way. I would be the last person alive to diminish the importance of books. But, um, you know, you can either be defensive like that or you can think, well, actually, maybe that means I, I need to reimagine the way in which I I approach teaching itself, you know, and there's all kinds of possibilities now. And it's one of the things I've been experimenting with in, in using, you know, multimedia, the multimedia possibilities of what a lecture can be. Because in a way, you know, it's almost unprecedented uh, for students. Do they, in any other aspect of their life, sit in a room and have to listen sometimes or for an hour or 45 minutes at the least, sometimes two hours? So the lecture becomes a kind of, it's a listening workout for them. 
But at the same time, maybe it's an opportunity for us on the other side of the generational divide to reimagine how we can furnish that hour or, or 90 minutes with, you know, talk and insight and reading as well as watching and listening. There are all kinds of possibilities, I think, to reimagine what, what can be contained in a lecture if you're open to those possibilities. One of the aspects of the book that I wasn't expecting to read about was your uh, philosophies on how you survive a university. I think the chapter is called Generosity as a Strategy for Survival. And you write, one way of coping with life in the university today is in part to trade envy for admiration. It is a lesson that I've learned from some of my feminist colleagues. Intellectual generosity can be a survival strategy and a prophylactic against the corrosive aspects of intellectual cruelty that have been institutionalised by the adult culture. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, well, you know, the changes to the university that have been driven by finance are are one thing. There's another dimension of those changes, which is about the measurement and and the reduction of intellectual value or the value of a scholar or even a piece of writing to some kind of numerical judgment, giving everything in the context of of the university a number, you know a number that then can be ranked and measured against others. It's produced a kind of a form of competition that is profoundly individualising, that I think is also profoundly divisive in, in the hierarchies that it establishes and the pecking orders that it establishes across the sector. And, and lots of people will say, well, it's important for value to be judged and we should know where the best universities are. I'm sceptical about that, to be honest with you. I think what's happened is that the that kind of culture of audit and measurement has produced a tremendous amount of divisiveness, of spitefulness, and of intellectual cruelty, I'd go as far to say. The thing about that that I think I feel so passionately about is that it runs against the grain of one of the central values of scholarship itself or of education itself. And what I mean by that is education or scholarship cannot be done alone. It cannot be done individually. It is not the product of an individual, brilliant, genius mind. It is not. It cannot be. Uh, We can't learn anything alone, I don't think. Or it's profoundly limited. So, you know, learning always involves sociable being with others and learning from others. And, and, and in a way, there's a huge paradox at the heart of education itself, because on the one hand, everything that we are awarded in terms of our capacity to be educated, you know, from our O-levels and or in the old days or our high school exams to the entrance level exams that we do for universities to the degree that we get to PhDs to professorships even are awarded individually. Yet at the same time, none of those things can be achieved alone. So my sort of rhetorical flourish around generosity is, is an attempt to try and foreground that, you know, following a hunch that someone has given you. You know, that is a generous thing, you know, and, and partly I, I've come to feel that one way of surviving in this environment that's imposing competition, imposing hierarchies, that's in a sense institutionalizing selfishness and self-centeredness, is to commit oneself to those values of generosity, of circulation, of valuing others.